Good morning, Bucknutters. It is Sunday, April 12th, 2020. I am Dan Rubin. This is Bucknuts Almost Live, our Sunday morning podcast. Got a little something different for you today in a megapod in terms of length. We are joined by ESPN's John Kime, who covers the NFL, the Redskins specifically. Going to give you the latest on Dwayne Haskins, Terry McLaurin, and Chase Young. Who knows, maybe even some Jeffrey Okuda chatter. I think this conversation will be fun. John is an Ohio native and an Ohio State graduate. He once ran the Lantern on campus. He's been covering the NFL since about 1994, so he is one of the best and definitely a guy you want to listen to. Given you have a little extra time now, we hope the fact this podcast pushes 50 minutes. You got some time to sit back and talk Buckeyes, NFL, and the future with a guy who loves the Buckeyes and knows the Redskins better than anybody. Sit back and enjoy John Kime from ESPN. As promised, Bucknutters, we are joined by John Kime. He has been the ESPN Redskins reporter for the last eight years. He is the host of the John Kime Report podcast, which you can subscribe to on all major podcast outlets. And he's a proud graduate of The Ohio State University. Join us today to talk plenty. Dwayne Haskins, Chase Young, Taylor McLaurin, his life at Ohio State. John, thanks for joining us, brother. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on, Dan. John and I go way back. We were both guys who cut our teeth in the D.C. area. He could hack it. I had to bail. One of the best editors I've had, Dan, without a doubt, without a doubt. No, I appreciate that. We had a, we had a good run. I don't know what this means, but we used to call ourselves the Clippers, and I was Lamar Odom. So things worked out better for Elton Brand, <laughs> clearly. That's actually a true story. But uh, we're going to table this in chronological order. And one of the reasons I wanted to have John on, besides the fact that he's, in my opinion, the best NFL beat writer going and is an Ohio State grad, so I know you guys would listen to him. But the Redskins, there's a very good chance they're going to be built around not just two Buckeyes, but two guys who were raised in the D.C. area or at least played high school football there. They have Terry McLaurin there. So we're going to go in chronological order here and start with Dwayne Haskins. So during the recruiting process and then when he got there, try and tell everybody from your perspective, because you knew Dwayne coming in a little bit better than the others, sure. how that first year went. Uh, we've heard a ton of stuff about him, about his work habits or whatever. The one thing I did say to you is that he was going from a culture with Ohio State where – I think you could make an argument it's as good a football culture as exists on planet Earth with great quarterback coaching, and he was dropped into another culture that we call the Groundhog Day culture, which hasn't been as good and struggled. So if you could just bring everybody up to speed on Dwayne, where he was, where he is, your thoughts on the national hype, the floor is yours. Yeah, and we'll go right back to the beginning because there's been so much out there with him. And it's funny, Dan, because before the draft, one of the stories I wrote for ESPN was about the rise of Dwayne Haskins. How did he go from um, being, you know, from a one-year starter to at that point when we started the story, you're thinking he's a top 10, maybe even a top five pick. Now, clearly he ended up going 15, so it wasn't top 10, but he was still a guy with a one-year rise. Why is he in this position? So through that reporting, what, what I found is that he did put a lot of extra work in. And he did a lot of stuff in high school, for example, he'd go from practice to working out with his quarterback's coach. Um, if you remember Bryson Spinner, who was an Episcopal guy, and for D.C. people, they would know that name. But he would go, Dwayne would leave high school football practice and go work out with his quarterback coach for a couple hours. He would organize throwing sessions in the D.C. area. He'd get guys like Stephon Diggs, who went to Maryland at the time, who would come work out with Dwayne and have Dwayne throw to him because he was better. He was a better passer than the guys at Maryland. That was just so he, he did put in all that extra work. So you get to the draft, and I knew going into the draft that the Redskins liked him, but what they didn't want to do is take him with the 15th pick, at least not the football side. Um, and I think you know, that was clear that the owner, Dan Snyder, really wanted him. His son goes to the same high school that Dwayne Haskins went to, which is Bullis High School in D.C. area. Now, they didn't go to school together, but they just happened to go to the same school, so Dan Snyder knew him pretty well. He wanted him. He wanted the local guy. He wanted to boost some, you know, energy into the, into the program, so to speak. The coaches wanted a guy who they knew could help them at 15 win right now. They knew that Dwayne Haskins would be a project. So you take that, 
And now you're putting him with a coach who viewed him as a project, and Jay Gruden viewed him as a project, and he's a coach that had to win right now and a staff that had to win right now. It made for a very bad situation as far as like the, if you could say what's the worst situation to put Dwayne Haskins in I think it would be that one I think the best one would have been if he had gone somewhere and he's able to play behind an established quarterback for a year or so and learn and learn the offense with a coach who's going to be there and help develop him and have a plan for him that's the spot he would have gone it would have been better going into and I do believe that the Ohio State coaches I think told them as much that you have to you know like He's going to be able to do this, but you're going to have to be patient with him. And they knew the number one word I heard coming out of the draft from the Redskins, top to bottom, was patience. You've got to be patient with him. Everybody was saying that, including the owner. So, but you take that, and then where some of the issues, I shouldn't say issues, what they wanted to see from him initially was an NFL-level approach. And I say that because it wasn't like he didn't put work and work to get there. But an NFL-level approach means you're going from doing ABC to now doing ABCDEFG. So you're, you're going home and you're studying everything at night and you're coming back the next day and mastering it because that's what people expect. I think he had to get used to some of that. But I think he also had to you know, get used to the fact that he wasn't the guy. And I, don't, I think sometimes when you're not the guy, maybe you don't understand the approach you have to take to get to become the guy. There's not a... Now it's my turn. Now I take that approach. It's a, you got to do this all along. And so I think that led to some, some concern with among the coaches that was he putting it in at an NFL, and I stress NFL level. And I think he had to get there. And, you know, I think, and you'd hear this from players, you'd hear it, you know, you know, you'd hear from more than a few players. It wasn't just one coach saying it. I think, you know, then over time you did see that. And so I think during the course of the season, Early in the season, you know, he was still having problems. He was having problems, when, you know, because he had to learn. Dan, the thing that people forget with Dwayne is that he only started 14 games of college. That's not a lot. Then you're going to the NFL, and it's not just about learning an offense. It's about learning to read defenses. It's about he had to learn how to call plays in the huddle. He had never done that. So there's a – like, it's not just a matter of regurgitating the play. It's making it – it's doing it clearly and concisely to each group. So he can look at the offensive line when it's, when it's their part of the, of the verbiage. He can look at them so they clearly understand what they have to do. And he – that's one thing that he had talked about, that he had to master. And so there was a lot of stuff that he started to do that he had to do extra to get there. And I think he started to realize that. And so later – you know, early in the year, he would go in there and he wasn't ready. And it was just, it was obvious and, and it just, it didn't go well. But then he became the starter. And then, you know, even early on in that, I think there was some tug of wars going on. But then he started, I think they started to give him a lot more attention as well. And that's something he also needs. I mean, I think anybody needs that, but I think he really needed that. And once he started to get that, you saw a different guy. And, you know, you could see like, Having watched him at Ohio State, you know, I knew what I was watching the previous year. You knew what he looked like when he was confident and throwing a certain way. And I remember even telling him, Dan, after a couple of games, I'm like, I see a guy who's more confident. Just the way you're walking, the way you're talking, the way you're conducting yourself before games, you see a different guy. And he's like, because, I, because he goes, I am feeling more confident. So you could see something different in him as the season went on. And then it translated. Then he started to do things away from the field a lot more. And there was, I remember hearing this conversation in the locker room. He was having with another players like, hey, what are you going to do? Where, where are you going now? He's like, well, I got to go home. I got to go watch the blitz package that, of the Eagles or whatever team they were playing that week. I'm like, well, that's a good sign. And it was a Friday, you know. So I think he started doing that stuff. And I even had one coach tell me that he, that he felt like Dwayne started to do more because he started to see it translating into success on the field and you could see it over he gradually was getting better and his last two games were very solid and those last two games have people here feeling pretty good about you know about where he ended now they don't know where he's going to go for the next five years you know nobody does I mean you know people in Cleveland don't know where Baker Mayfield's going to go and he's played a lot so you can't it's hard to extrapolate now he did he played well in these two games now he's going to be a superstar you can't go there yet but they liked how he finished. They liked the approach he had. And I think that was a big thing. And I think there was a, I think part of the thing was they felt like the new staff certainly feels like 
based on what their conversations were, the people in the front office, other coaches, that the staff started giving him a lot more attention and, and, it, and it paid off. And so I think that really helped. I think they, they now feel like they have a plan to develop him. And, and like all the stuff I've heard about him in the offseason has been really good, working out three times a day or at least trying to before all the shutdown stuff. So that is a long-winded response but it should catch you up to speed on where he's at. I mean, I think this organization feels like, you know, if you, if you take a certain plan with him, that, yes, they feel they can develop him. And if it doesn't work, then they can go in a different direction. But they're not ready to go that way yet because they saw how he finished. They saw how he progressed. And even some people here who maybe were doubters beforehand said, I remember even asking them, would you take Tua? Do you think they'll take Tua? It's like, no, because – you know, I think they're because, you know, a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons was because they felt like Dwayne, the way he finished, makes him a lot more intriguing. I'll, I'll admit that I'm a bit of a Haskins apologist, but the people in D.C. He was put in a, don't bad, have he was put in a bad situation. He was. he was put in a bad situation, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, he went from a spot where, they look at the roster, Ohio State, I mean, how many games have they ever played in the past five years where they aren't the more talented team on the field? But he was going for a spot where his personnel surrounding him was elite to where there's nobody that would have called the Redskins personnel elite last year. Terry McLaurin never spent a day at Ohio State as anything more than the third receiver. And he was by far their best receiver last year about Terry. But what's ironic is they brought in Kyle Allen. We were talking about this a little bit before the show. Right. Kyle Allen – was a heavy Ohio State recruit in 2014, the number one rated passer in the top 247 ranking, the only guy to get a 100. It was one of the worst year ever for quarterbacks. Of the top 30 quarterbacks, the 29th one is the only productive pro. His name is Patrick Mahomes. I digress. (laughs) What are your expectations for Dwayne going forward now? I, I mean, I see Dwayne personally, and I always have. This is my comparison to you, even when we talked about him at Ohio State. He really reminds me of Sam Bradford in that he is a really, really gifted passer. Um, Kevin Wilson had an impact on on, uh, Sam as well, but you've got to be able to protect him. Dwayne is not a particularly mobile guy. What are your expectations for him going forward this year? Do you think he'll beat out Kyle Allen? I mean, we know it's going to be a screwed-up football season because they've lost a a bunch of training time, and Allen has, you know, the history with the new coach, Ron Rivera, from Charlotte. So uh, what's your vibe on Dwayne going forward? Yeah, and I'm going to back up one second, too, because in terms of the work, too, that I was talking about, he lowered his body fat by, like, from, like, 17% to maybe 12% during the season. So, like, that was part of a factor, too, for the coaches. He was a little bit doughy still. We saw that in college. And I think it did help. It helped him later in the year become a little bit more mobile. And, And you saw that just like at Ohio State, you saw him running more. He's not. He'll never beat you with his legs. You know, I mean, he's not going to – you're not going to go into a game worried about Dwayne Haskins' legs. But it did help him improve. And so, again, that was the work. So when people were saying he wasn't putting in the work, that's just not – I don't feel like it's accurate. I think it was putting in the extra, extra work that NFL quarterbacks do to succeed in this league. So just to be clear on that. And then as far as expectations, I think if it's a normal offseason and a normal year, there's no doubt that Dwayne Haskins goes in there as a starter right not against Kyle Allen because he's he's the guy they want to develop I've heard that consistently um you hear that from people who talk to people here you hear that from anybody that I talk to like that's now you're going to hear some people opine on like well you know Kyle Allen this and that he does know that he does and I think what Ron Rivera has said is that if it got to a situation where there's like let's say they they come to back to camp and the, and like it's mid-August it's like we're starting the season in three weeks well, if you're a coach and you know you have a quarterback who knows the offense, that's probably, that may be the guy you go with first, and Ron Rivera said that. But you take the emergency situation away, and this is Dwayne Haskins' job to lose. They, I know like they, they do view Allen as a, as a capable backup, and because he knows the offense, in an unprecedented year or offseason, he could benefit them early on. That's how I would view it. And I, you know, but I'm going in there like the thing – here's the hard part with Haskins and a lot of like – you know how like 
you know, Twitter and Redskins fans, all that, they haven't seen the kid since December. So nobody knows what he's really doing or what he's going to look like in this offense because nobody's seen him in it. We don't know what he knows about it. What I do know is, like I said earlier, he is working out. He'll, he's working out with the guy three days a week. They're going, they were going over, before they traded for Kyle Allen, they were going over, and I say that because Kyle Allen can now help him with the playbook. Um, but before that, you know, he's going over Panthers film, watching the routes, and then work, you know, dupl- replicating those routes in practice to try and get a good feel for the offense and what Scott Turner, their new coordinator, was calling. So, you know, I think that's, like, he's doing all, he's watching a lot of film on Carolina to try and get that feel. So there's, there's a lot of things he's doing to try and to, to um, speed the process up, but it is really hard because once you get to the field, you, you know, until we see him on the field, we don't know where it's going to be. And I think they don't know. So what they do know is that Kyle Allen can run the show. So if it is a, an unprecedented situation, again, where there's like, you got two weeks or three weeks to go, well, then as Rivera said, Allen would have a leg up. Short of that, this is Haskins' job to lose. He has to go out there, and if he, like, again, they view him as Allen is a good backup and insurance in case Dwayne isn't at a certain point yet. But the key, the goal here is to try and develop Dwayne. One little note about Scott Turner, while he, um, you know, he's never coached Dwayne and he's had Kyle Allen, he was, a, he was an assistant coach at Michigan, in 2017 so when he knew Haskins at that time and when Haskins came in for JT I think he knew like while some other people may have been celebrating because it's backup is coming in my understanding was he knew what might happen he knew the talent that Haskins had and we all saw what happened so that's part of his memory of Haskins as well so I think that helps too and you know he would have studied them coming out of the draft last year and et cetera et cetera but um, so I think, I think going into camp, he's going to have, he'll be in a good spot unless it's a really, really, really unprecedented situation. You mentioned something key there too, is that Redskins fans, at least ones who aren't Ohio state fans, haven't seen Dwayne just absolutely kick ass before. So they just don't have that in their mind and it alters the, probably their patience level, but I've seen them do it. So I, yeah. I don't need to see him do it again. I, I know he can do it. You put the right people around him, he'll thrive. So speaking of which, well, a lot, and, guys and if who, I can if I can ahead. build up if I if I can build off that point too, I was talking to somebody about Joe Burrow yesterday, and just like you know, and I, I was even asking him like you know like what you know what what were they telling you about um, you know the Ohio State coaches about Burrow and Haskins in that competition because this guy would have been studying quarterbacks for a few years so. But, you know, he didn't really get into what they were saying, but his point was that he thought, like, Haskins was maybe a better pure passer than, than Burrow, as well as Burrow played last year. But the, one of the similarities that, that, we, that he – or one of the things he brought up with um, – you say you've seen him do that before, and I bring that up because he said even with Burrow, like, Burrow's going to go in there and struggle, and he could go in there and throw 20 interceptions this year, and, but what he does know is he has the last year in the bank in his confidence bank. And I would say the same thing for Haskins, that when he gets going, like once you get there, it's like, listen, I've done this before. You know, I did it here. And, yes, there's a lot of talent around him, but there was a lot of talent around Burrow too. You know, and you have to give the quarterbacks credit for where they're putting the ball. I mean, and I know going into that, that story I told you I wrote before the draft, one of the things Ryan Day said is that when he gets in a rhythm, he's as good a passer as you're going to see. And that's one thing that you could see it at times last year. is like, oh, there's that rhythm. And it just wasn't happening enough early, but later on it was. And I think one of the other things for him, too, that you know, people have to get, understand, like, to get used to reading protections is difficult. And especially, like, if, you know, it's so different from college um, to do it because the blitzes and all that are a lot more um, intense and varied. And if you're considered a pocket passer, it's even harder because, like, a guy like Kyler Murray regulates the defense with his legs. And you can you – can, it's harder to disguise things because – if you don't get it right, this kid could break off a 50-yard run like that. And with Haskins, it's like with, you're going to see more exotic blitzes with pocket passers because you know you, you're, they're going to be in the pocket. And so, you know, you could c- c- cause them to pause a little bit with their reads and get home a little bit better. He got better in that area too. So, But I just I go back to the like what you said, just playing off that. He has that money in the bank, so to speak, from 2018, just like Burrow will have that um, this year as well. 
I'm as big a fan of Joe Burrow as everybody else. But I will say this. That offense that he played in this year was revolutionary from an LSU standpoint from Joe Moorhead. The teams they went against had never prepared for an LSU team like that. So it's almost like your first time through the rotation as a pitcher. I think they benefited off of that. I think think Joe's going to do great in the pros, but the idea that he's going to come in and look like he did last year, which was basically the greatest quarterback ever to walk the earth, I think is a little aggressive. Speaking of which, being aggressive. If you would have told me what Terry McLaurin did last year, I would have been shocked. When we discussed this heading into the draft last year, I wanted the Cowboys to take him late because I thought he was the best gunner I had ever seen on special teams. (laughs) I am flat shocked he's as good as he was as a receiver. Um, And I watched every Redskins game. You watched every game he played in college and then saw him in the pros. Were you surprised? Yes. And let me tell you who else was surprised, the Redskins. They really liked him, clearly, because they took him in the third round. But they didn't take him there thinking that he was going to become the guy that he did. They took him there because they liked his speed, they felt he could develop, and they felt he'd be an unbelievable special teams player. That's why they took him there. So, yes, they were surprised as well. I mean, you know, it's funny because, you know, you watch him in, in that offense, and there's so many other guys that were doing things. Remember when he ran his 40 time, like, wow, I didn't realize he was – as fast as he was, you know, because I mean, you, you saw the, like what I always liked about him in college was he did all those little things. He was, I, whenever people would reference him before the draft, I would call him, he's a culture guy. He's the kind of guy that you have. If you're trying to build a certain culture, you want guys like McLaurin in that room. And he was, you know, so you saw the blocking, you saw the special teams, and you saw the ability of receiver. So he could help you in multiple ways. Well, it turns out like he was less about, much less about special teams than just from scrimmage. And one of the things that, you, that is hard to always understand what a guy does and, like, and how they work. And, like, for example, in the spring, I would watch him go up against, like, a corner like it was um, Dominique rogers Cromartie because he was playing with the Redskins last year. And you'd watch him in the spring, and I'd watch McLaurin go against him, and he wasn't always fooling him. I mean, like, you know, he'd make this cut, and, he, you know, a little stem to the outside, cut back inside. Well, Cromartie never fell for it. And like you so you see him like, okay, you know, you talk to guys about, about that and like, well, he's got to learn how to do this and that, you know, he's got to learn how to run with a little bit more patience and sell things a little bit more. So let's go ahead now to training camp, which is only about a month and a half later in the interim. Um, McLaurin had talked to Cromartie and talked to people about, well, what is it that you're, why am I not getting open? What are you, what are you saying here? Blah, blah. So he took what they told him and he worked on it. You get to training camp. Now he's turning guys around. And so you see, like, wow, this kid, that's why this kid is going to be good. And you could see it, and you saw it in games. It was not a fluke because, you know, he was the first game of the year against the Eagles. Now they're using his speed, and there are some good play calls that got him open. But then you're watching him against good corners, too. Like, you go back and watch him against Darius Slay against the Lions, and he really did a really good job. And Slay is an excellent corner. And the reason why, though, he could adapt during the game. So there were times coming off the line of scrimmage where um, McLaurin's learned how Slay was playing him. So it's a chess match, right? So he starts coming off the line of scrimmage differently with his hands, knowing how Slay would play him. And he starts getting open because of it. But it was a nice little battle. He was getting open against guys like Byron Jones. Now, if they had better quarterback play last year, He's easily over a thousand yards, and I think it was he missed a couple games, and he still got over nine hundred. But there was there were a lot of games where I'd go back and watch the film, Dan, and like you're seeing McLaurin's open over there, and it wasn't just it was not on just Dwayne Haskins. This was on Case Keenum as well. You know where you're looking like God, this guy's wide open. You know, and, and you look at him, he's like he's he's part of that progression. And he's getting open all the time. So whether or not you get it to him, he's still getting open. And, you know, he's just – there aren't a lot of guys that you meet where you say he's exactly who I think he would be. McLaurin is one of those guys. Urban Meyer always talked about Terry McLaurin. He's high on the guys anyway. But Terry McLaurin is a first-rate yeah. human. I remember being there the day in June when he was a high school junior, and they told him to come back after his senior year to earn his offer. By the yeah. way, they offered Eric Glover Williams that day. Not not that bright. Huh. We're going to take a quick break, come back and talk about a guy who could become the next Redskins. We are back. Chase Young is dealing with right now what is very similar to what I think Jack Sawyer is dealing with 
with Ohio State recruiting in the class of 2021. They got him in the mix so early and kind of racked him up as a W that everyone has kind of forgotten how great Sawyer is. I think with the draft, guys who are that good that you know are going top two or three aren't really that fun to talk about because there's not really a lot of variables. But Chase is that good. Here's what I'd love for you to tell us. And this you told me before the show, you went back and watched every snap of the Clemson game, yeah. albeit a painful experience given the result. And we'll painful. get to that. But there, ha- there was like uh, I don't I don't want to blame too much on Mel, but there was a there's widespread chatter that he didn't fare as well in that game, and he wasn't as dominant down the stretch of games as he was earlier in the season. Having watched the tape, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, and even watching it live, and now listen, I'm going to back up. Watching it live, I'm thinking the same thing, like, all right, this is going to be the series where Chase Young gets home, forces a game-changing play, wrap this baby up, and let's go home. And you didn't see that. But what you would see is him in the backfield a lot and just almost getting there. What you saw on film, you know, most of the runs were away from Chase Young. I mean, almost every run was, unless it was a zone read option, where you're trying to, you know, make him make a move. And I think there was one time where Lawrence got around it, but Warner missed a tackle, which would have been a no yard, would have been for no yards. Another time I think he made him cut up. And I think somebody else was there to, to clean it up, but um, it was only like for one yard. So like, you know, th- but most of the time the runs were away from him. There are a lot of QB draws away from him. And when, when Lawrence was in the pocket, that ball's out. And I would say most of the passes that I would time were 2.3 seconds or less. That's an awfully, awfully quick. So you can go one-on-one with, a, with a, a guy like Young if you know the quarterback's getting the ball out on a screen, on a quick throw. So they, you know, and then, you know, there were a couple times where, there were a couple times where you say, you got to get home there. There's no doubt. I think he could have done some better things. I think he would be the first one to tell you that. I was talking to a guy that trains him, and he was saying that after the first Wisconsin game where he has, what, three sacks? He said he's talking to Chase, and Chase was upset because he felt he should have had five. So I'm sure that Chase Young is going to look at some of those plays against Clemson and say, i got to get home on that one, or i got to do this. But to say that, like, I would get people saying, oh, he disappeared, or they manhandled they, Somebody told me they, they dominated him. Like, <laughs> you know, I, you can say that if it happened, but you've got to watch the tape to see what did happen. So that's a lot of what happened. You know, there were, there were times where they, they chipped – the running, they use the running back and the tight end to chip him a lot, right? Or at least, at least a decent amount. You know, there are other times where there's a guy inside to help in case he goes there. So, you know, I just I think there's a lot of factors that went into that. Shoot, on the on the play where where Sean Wade gets thrown out of the game, you have two guys on Chase Young, one of whom has a hand on his face mask, right? So, you know, he did cause pressure. He did cause some disruption. He led Lawrence into a, one or two sacks. Um, but you know, again, you want to see the guy get home, but I think you have, like I said, you, and there was, and I'll say this, Dan, there are probably some plays in there where you say, depending on your view of Chase Young, you're going to view it this way, you know, and you can say, oh, he's got to get home here. Or you're going to view it as a, oh, well, you know, you're not going to look at the same way. Right. And I think it just depends on that. You can see it the way you want, but if you look at the overall game, when the quarterback is getting rid of the ball as fast as Lawrence was, I also think too, He's going against an NFL-type quarterback in that game. And I say that because there were times where Lawrence, he would step up a little bit in the pocket. So, like, Young beats his guy to the seven-yard mark where the quarterback should be. Well, Lawrence calmly steps up, keeps his eyes downfield, and slides out of it. But that's not on Young. You know, you know what I mean? Like, he did his job there, and, but you're going against a kid with NFL qualities as a quarterback who knows how to do that. So, I just – you know, I don't. I think the narrative of him like certainly disappearing. All that again. There were a couple plays too, Dan, where you look at it and say, okay, if you you get to the top there, and if you can do this better, now you're getting home. You you beat the guy, but maybe you got shoved off your path. Maybe you need to finish differently with your hand at the top of the rush to get to the quarterback. But you but you still saw a guy who was make who was being disruptive more than anybody else there. And then this is one thing I never quite understood. Like, they had one of the sacks. I can't remember who got the sack, but they had Young basically lined up inside. And I saw this a couple times. I think it was against Michigan as well, where guys are getting you, – you're rushing Chase Young inside. Well, what's happening? They're going to pay attention to him. The tackle is going to peek inside. Now the linebacker is coming outside, and he's got a sack. 
You know, and so like I wish, kind of wish they had done that a little bit more, but you know, I don't think that he disappeared. But you know, and I mean, I think that there, yeah, there could have been a couple plays, but there are a lot of factors that went into that. And when you watch it, it's like it's it's clear that this guy is still disruptive. There's been a ton of chatter about not about Chase himself, but about the second pick and whether it might get traded for two attack of Iowa. Do you expect them to pick Chase Young? Yes, I do. As of right now, I do. And, um, you know, I, they're not going to – I know there's been some smoke with them with Tua. I don't – I'm not buying it. And, um, you know, there's always – until they make that pick, everything's on the table. But if I had to rank them right now, it's, it's you're, you're drafting Chase Young. I think that's the greater percentage. And then there is a chance they would trade that pick. I think it would take, it would take a big offer to get them to consider – trading that pick they don't feel like they you know they need a lot and the, you know the theory is always well you need so much just get a lot of guys what they don't have dan are guys with elite skills chase young has elite skills now jeffrey okuda has elite skills and i think isaiah simmons has some too i think the question with simmons by some in the nfl would be where is he elite at as a position right is it is it do you view him as a safety do you view him as a linebacker a linebacker is a, in a 4-3, which they play. He's probably not a weak side linebacker. Do you feel he can be elite there? And if you don't, then it's difficult to, to trade back and take a guy like that. Um, you know, so I, I do think – I think it would take an awful lot. I think the, the one question I have in terms of somebody trading up to get that pick is are they going to be that aggressive for Tua to get up there? So, like, if Miami comes to them and says, well, well you know, we want to move up, we'll give you our five and we'll give you our second the third of their first round pictures is like what 20 in the twenties. There's no way the Redskins even should even consider that. Cause what are you getting? You're giving up a guy who could be a game changer on your defense for what, you know? And like, I, I think if you had to rank positions of importance in the NFL, it's going to be quarterback and it's going to be an edge rushers next. And you have a coach in Ron Rivera and you have a defensive coordinator with the big say in Jack Del Rio who have had Julius Peppers, Khalil Mack, Von Miller. They see Chase Young as one of those types of guys, and they see what the Niners did last year with Nick Bosa and the impact he made on their defense. He only had nine sacks. And, again, I was talking to a coach the other day, and we were talking about the Niners in relation to all this. He said those interior guys were always good pass rushers before Nick Bosa got there. Look what look, Bosa elevated that defense to a different level. You know, and so and I think those guys are better because of him but they always had those good interior pass rushes and they didn't do a whole lot. The Redskins have some good interior guys. You get Chase Young, now you have a chance to build a really, really strong side of the ball. So I think that's why I'm, I'm expecting them to take him unless they got some massive offer. Very interesting. I wonder if they drop down to five, which is what a lot of people think where they might go because that's where the Dolphins pick is. If right. they did that, do you think they would take Okuda or Simmons? I I would I would think so because one of them will be there. I mean, because if two goes two, then you would assume that Chase Young goes three, whether it's Detroit or somebody trading up for him. You know, and if he certainly doesn't go three, he's going no later than four. And I don't know why I don't know why you wouldn't take him because again, it is. I was told the other day seventy percent of the teams probably have him as the top ranked player on their board, so you're not going below three. So then it's like, who goes where? Does it, do the Giants take Okuda or Simmons? And you're getting the other one if you want to go that route. So, yeah, that's, I would think they would do that. But I also then think what, I, what I'm not sure of yet, Dan, is where do they rank the tackles, the offensive tackles, like, you know, Tristan Works, guys like that. Where do they rank them in relation to that? Because what they want or what they need are guys who are play at a high level. And they have a need for a left tackle with the Trent Williams situation. For those who don't know, he wants out of Washington. They, they are open to trading him. He's under contract for another year, but they are open, you know, so he might be gone. So they will need a left tackle. But um, so I don't, you know, so it depends on do you, how do you view those guys compared to the tackle? Who is the next guy for them? That's what I'm not sure of, but if, but they do have a need for, for more corners. Every, you know, this, listen, you can always use more corners and a guy at an elite level who can play at an elite level like Okuda. And I know there's some question about ball skill and, whatever that's what you hear from defensive back coaches in the NFL like you know he didn't make a lot of plays on the ball well you know that's that's one of the questions that you would hear about him but he has everything else 
And, um, you know, I, I mean, there are a lot of times they're also not throwing a lot his way. I mean, he's – I mean, he, he was as good a corner as I've seen there in a long time. I mean, it was just – he was phenomenal last year. So, I think he would have to be in the mix, and Simmons would be in the mix because, again, they, they could put him as a weak side linebacker and you could do a lot with him. But like I said, I think the one – the one thing I wonder about with him is where, what position is he at? And it's great to be able to do a lot, but are you going to be, how good are you going to be at each of those spots in the NFL? Not just what you did in college. So that's, that's one thing I would wonder. And, you know, again, I, I'm, I think the spots you can never have enough of are edge rushers and, and corners. <laughs> so, and then, I mean, going back to it young too, as you know, too, like with an edge rusher, I think the impact you have on everybody else is tremendous. The guy next to you, the guy behind you, the guy in the back, defensive backfield, those things all matter. And, and then he has the versatility to be able to, you, he can rush him inside and do things with him that way. Cause he is that athletic. And so I think that's why I go back to it. But, you know, so I, I just, I do expect them to, to sit at two, but if they go to five, you'd have to believe that one of those two guys is um, high on the board. It's incredible to say this out loud, but when you're talking about holes to fill, I don't know if people know this, but Terry McLaurin was the best player on the Redskins last year. So virtually any yeah. other spot, obviously quarterback's a little more of a material decision, but any other spot you say, um, I, mean, I guess they don't want to pay a safety because they already paid Landon Collins, but they have holes everywhere. I'm not saying that because I'm a Cowboys fan. I, I like to bring no, the truth. No, you're saying it because it's true. And listen, yeah. I've been talking to people there, they're like, there's not a position, despite whatever they did in Frenzy, there's not a position they wouldn't look to improve in the draft. You know, and I think, I think if there weren't questions about Tua's health, it would be a much bigger discussion, you know. Yeah. And, and I don't know what they would do, but I think it would be a much bigger discussion because then it's like, well, how do you – you know, if Tua's healthy, then you may have a chance at Burrow. So, you know, you, that would be a different discussion. But, so, but the point is they're not looking at any position as being filled. And while – you know, they do have some guys, they have Montez Sweat, they have Ryan Kerrigan who can rush, who can be an end in a 4-3, but are any of those guys Chase Young? Well, I don't, they don't have those kind of skills, you know? I mean, so it is, um, you know, you have to look at that, but you're right, they don't have, they, they have a lot of needs, and I think that's why one reason why a lot of Redskins fans want them to trade back is because they do have a lot of needs, but like I, well, the one thing I tell people is one of those needs is for elite players you win in this league with elite players all right John, yeah. let's talk about it you are a true buckeye i once told somebody if i needed to teach a class on pass interference in the end zone in big games you would be my professor you are the best at that zapruder film tell people about <laughs> your background with the buckeyes and just so they know i've tried to get john to come over to bucklets many times it's the one thing he won't do because it's his love Bring people up to speed. You're you're an Ohio native, and uh, yeah. there are definitely people listening to this podcast right now who read your stuff in the Lantern. Well, and I'll go way back because when when you grew up, I grew up in Lakewood, so you know you're you're a Cleveland kid, so you got the Cleveland sports, but then you got Ohio State. I mean, you know, I never. I'll be honest, Dan. When I was growing up, I was always amazed when people went to different colleges. I'm like, why would you go to a different school? This is Ohio State. Why wouldn't you go to Ohio State? Why are you going to anywhere else? I, I honestly, it took me many years to fully grasp that maybe college wasn't about like, yeah, it's the football team. And I've told you this before when I was in high school and I played, I played sports. I played football, you know, a couple of years of basketball, baseball. Um, did pretty well and um, actually even tried out for the baseball team at Ohio State. But I told my chemistry professor, I said, I'm going to Ohio State for football. He said, you're not good enough to play there. I said, I didn't say I was going there to play. So now the reason, the, the main reason I really went there, it, listen, that was where I always wanted to go. But as a journalism student, it, was, it had a really good program um, to, to go to. So I felt like it would all, my brother had gone, my oldest brother went there, he worked for the Lantern. And so I knew all about it. I knew his experience. I knew that it was really good. So I'm like, well, I want to go into journalism. I want to become a sports writer. My brother had a good experience there. It's Ohio State. It was the only school I applied to because back then, all you do is apply there. If you're in state, you're getting in. 
And the only other school I actually briefly considered was Indiana because it was like they had they had a good journalism program. Like I'm not going if I'm going somewhere, I'm going to Ohio State, you know. And um, there was something: do you go to the, do you go to a smaller level to play sports? I'm like I want this is what I want to do. So it was a no brainer for me to go there. And then at the you know I worked at the Lantern for a couple of years when I was at the Lantern as a God, good Lord, the stories that I worked on, like the last, my last day of the quarter as a reporter, I covered the basketball team in Gary Williams' first year. My, the end of the quarter, the last day we have, Woody Hayes dies. So, like, we get a call, like, it, was, it became like, you know, you get a call at, at 8.30 in the morning or whatever it is, like, you got to come in now, Woody just died. Like, okay, you're going to go in there, write a few stories, and we'll call it a day. You go in there, we weren't done till about probably about midnight, and everybody was in there making calls. I mean, I got statements from the White House. I was talking to ex-players, and, you know, a couple of us worked on the main story, but the entire issue was all Woody Hayes, and there was so much passion and good reporting put into it that I think we blew – We blew. I'll be honest, we blew the Columbus Dispatch's coverage out of the water. And, and it was just – it was like something to be really proud of. But that was my last quarter as a reporter. Then, you know, I, again, I covered Gary's – whole tenure for, for the Lantern and for um, a couple, you know, Buckeye Sports Bulletin, places like that. Um, and then um, when I was a sports editor for Ohio State, it was the year that Earl Bruce was fired. And one of my reporters, the first reporter I hired was um, Jean-Jacques Taylor, who went on to become, you know, Dallas Morning News. Um, he was with ESPN. He's now doing stuff in Dallas for ESPN Radio things like that. So, um, but that was my last quarter there. And then um, it was just, but it was, it was fantastic. When I was a sports editor, probably shouldn't say this, but you're not, you're supposed to be enrolled as a full-time student. That's the job. You are getting that because you're a student. Well, I, I was enrolled and then I took a couple of classes and I'm like, I just want to devote myself to this. And I dropped my classes after like a week or two because I, I want to just work on the paper. And it was a, such a great experience to be there doing that because it did teach when you're there, it teaches you how to compete in a big setting. And when you get out in this job, you have to compete and you're competing against the big boys. So you learn that in college there. And, and that was a good thing, but yeah, it was, it was a fun experience writing for them. And again, like, you know, covering Gary Williams was, was fantastic because he was, he gave me unbelievable, Dan, I had like, the access I had, because I would go to every practice, and you're just sitting there. And so he's like, "Okay, this kid's serious." So he, I would be in his office the day after games, working on stories. And if they lost, the, those meetings would be can't would be canceled. I would get a call from the secretary, like Gary doesn't want to meet with you today. But when he, they'd win, I'd be in his office for an hour, just getting stuff for stories. And it was because, like, he, you know, it was just such a great experience for me. But it was a lot of fun. Um, so you know, yeah. Great place. So also, let's finish with this. And it's been easier for me at Buck Nuts. Like I always say, it's nuts. It's not called Buck Rational Observers. So <laughs> I haven't had to sublimate my fandom when it comes to the Buckeyes. But when I have talked to you about the idea of you covering the Buckeyes at some point, you've always said you don't want to do that. Let the people know why, because it's – you're, you are your standard Midwest guy, and you play it close to the vest. You're not, you don't get too fired up. But when it comes to the Buckeyes, you know, sometimes when I talk to you, I can hear your 13-year-old John Kime again, which I love. Yeah. And how you've passed it on to your kids. So just oh, for, the, for the yeah. Bucknutters listening, when they hear you talk about the Redskins or see you going forward, and they know that you're from Ohio State, what should they know? Well, I think, well there's a couple things. One, you know the passion. But I'm going to back up one second because then – Somebody would ask me, like, when, when Haskins and McCord are here, like, oh, you must be excited to cover them because they're Ohio State guys. Like, what, what I, what I want to see are good players because when you cover good players, it's the job is better. And it's nice. I'm, I'm like, what I like having those guys in the locker room is to talk about Ohio State football. Like, I could go up to McCord and, like, well, what, it, what you know, what's, what's, what's up with Ryan Day? Like, what is he really like? He's like, he's, he's the mastermind, you know. So you get some insight from them just from that. But once they get to the NFL – you're covering them like they are NFL players. Not because you don't, I'm not trying to give them a pass because they're Ohio State guys. So if Dwayne Haskins isn't doing certain things, 
then I have to point that out. So I want to, so that, so I'm able to separate my job from being a reporter, from being an Ohio State guy. So that's one thing. But the other thing is there is a deep passion and deep enough that after that Clemson game, I did not read a single article on the football team for a few months because it was just too, it's like, I just don't want to even think about football right now. I don't want to think about that game because that was a game where we all know one of 20 plays goes a different way and they win that game. And so like, but that's like, even at this age, you know, you get to the point, like, why am I still like this? Like, it is what it is. Just roll with it, baby. And, you know, there's like, I, I mean, part of the reason why, you know, you don't like, it would be hard to cover them is because I want to maintain that when you're a reporter, you don't get a lot of chances to really to feel that way about your teams anymore. But I don't want to ever lose that with Ohio state because it kind of makes you feel alive still. And I want to be able to, to do that when they, when the national, when they won the national championship, it matters a great deal. And, and my kids, my wife worked on the lantern. So we are an Ohio state family and my kids who are two of my three boys, my, my third boy doesn't care as much about it, but he understands it. My other two are diehards and my middle one is a lot like me with it. And so, you know, um, so it's that was illness. definitely passed on by my, it is. And, it, but you know, and I also think like, I don't feel like I'm one of those irrational fans. Cause like, I'm, you know, you can see, maybe this is the reporter in me, but you can see what are the flaws here. I don't just buy everything hook, line, and sinker. I don't just say that everything is great because it's Ohio State. If there are issues, I think the program is bigger than anybody else. The program always survives. And I think, you know, I think they understand that too. But like, so I don't just make excuses for anything either. You know, I don't want to be that. I, I want to see what it really is. But when you're inside it, you also see the way the sausage is made, and it's, it's not always pretty. So I think that's one of the things you kind of like. Like I said, I like still being a fan of those teams. And there was when when um, when LeBron left the first time from the Cavs, and my son, who was at that time, he was, geez, I don't remember, he was young, maybe 10 years old, and he had a LeBron jersey, and he gave it to me. He's like, here, I'm done with this. And I would, I, the first thing I did is I went and got him, an, I think I got him an Ohio State hat. I said, this team, this team never lose, this team will never leave, and they'll always win. You know what I mean? So, like, it's, it's just been such a constant in, in my life. And, like, you know, you have relationships built on this, too. Like, you know, I'm texting with my brothers. It's funny because, like, if I tweeted the stuff I texted, people would think I'm an irrational person. Because, <laughs> like, people who follow me on Twitter and the Redskins fans know me as a very level-headed guy. If they saw my text, I think they might sometimes think, oh, it's different because it's like everybody else. Like, what, this, what, what's, what, what are they doing here? You know, and then the, the, the text chain is always kind of funny, but, like, that's how you stay in touch with your brothers. You know, every Saturday, you know you're going to be texting with them. My be- I have a best friend who's doing it, my, my kids, you know, we had college. My son went to Alabama, and it was miserable for him the first year because he is an Ohio State guy. You know, I was like, you know, you're going to Alabama. They're paying your Scott. They're paying for your tuition. It's okay not giving it up. He is an Ohio state guy. So, you know, it's just, so it is very deeply ingrained. And, um, you know, I think, I feel like that's why I say though, I do feel like I can cover guys who went, came from there because my job as an NFL reporter and covering the Redskins is you have to be honest about where things are at and you have to do that no matter where they come from. Listen, one of, one of the guys I got along with the best in, in, in Washington was John Jansen, a tackle from Michigan, you know, and, um, he would always duck me for every, you know, late in the year, late in November for a couple of days. But, you know, the point is like, you don't use the college. The college doesn't do anything to me when they get to the NFL. It's, it's nice to have that. And so like, I think there was, I think I even, one of my most popular tweets last year was um, there was a, another reporter from the Washington Post who was a Michigan guy. And we we're, there were four of us talking, like he was talking to McLaurin and there was another Michigan guy there and somebody made a crack at McClure and he goes, all I know is I have five gold pants. And I tweeted that out. It's like, it was unbelievable. The traction it got. But like, that's what I'm here for. Now, when you get on the field, I got to analyze you a certain way, but I like that. No, no, John, I think what you captured there, that love and that passion, it's a lot of the reason this site exists and thrives. Yes, absolutely. So we're just tremendously appreciative of all the people who follow the team and such. I'm not yeah, going to tell absolutely. the story about how John Jansen threw you in an ice bath on the hottest day of the summer. Well, 
and which he was did incredible. Well, I can guys know that. those ice baths that players get into. I can't remember who well, helped him, but two offensive okay, linemen picked you up and tossed well, you in there. It was, and let, let me say this: like this, I don't even I don't need to get into the whole backstory, but suffice say there was a reporter who had made a bet to sit that he could sit in the ice tub for three minutes, okay, and he'd, he was going to win. I don't know how much money, but I was standing away from it because I even told him like if I go over there. I know because Jansen was one of the ringleaders. If I go over there, I know my, based on my relationship with him, I'm going to end up in there. So I stayed in the back. I stayed quiet. But Brandon Noble was with John Jansen. Brandon Noble is a Penn State guy. So Brandon Noble says to Jansen, he points to me, goes, isn't he an Ohio State guy? <laughs> so uh-huh. he goes, yeah, yeah. So they came and got me. Now, they, and they dumped me in the water, and it was my face felt paralyzed. But it was early in the cell phone era as well. My cell phone was in my year. pocket. So my cell phone got destroyed. So I ended up getting an upgrade from a Michigan guy, John Jansen. So I was able to get an upgrade from it. So, yeah. But, yeah, that, it was all because of the Ohio State-Michigan thing. And that's, what, that's one of the things that's fun about some of this stuff. Because, like, when Jansen was there, again, Michigan guy, and he would talk about winning a national championship. And I would always ask him, because, you know, you're an Ohio State guy. That was a co-national championship. So I'd ask him, well, how does it work with the how does it work with the rings? Do you guys like give them to the Nebraska players for half a year or for one year? Like, how does that work? And so, you know, and when he was first with the Redskins, it kind of was going back and forth. It was before Trestle, and and it yep. was what may back and forth is the wrong phrase. But when he got to Redskins, it was '99. So Cooper finally figured out that you you could beat them. And but then when Trestle came, it was like Jansen would just duck me for about three days. <laughs> So, and even now, like, he's on Twitter because he's with the Big Ten Network. And he, like, a couple weeks, a week ago, he tweeted out, like, you know, he, he's a mission, you know, he's a mission guy, he's a Detroit guy. He's like, hey, what games do you guys want to watch? What games would you, I'm watching this game of the Tigers. What games would you guys want to watch? So I just tweeted him, like, I got a couple of recommendations if you want them. So, you know, it's, that's the fun part of that rivalry still, um, you know, so it's, yeah, but yeah, it's a, listen. It's like you're right though. The re, people, the Ohio State fans, you know, you get their. I mean, I think they're phenomenal. I think they could be crazy, but that's a good thing for everybody on this side of the industry, and for what you do. Because without that, you don't have what you have. And you know, it's nice to be part of something where people care that passionately about it. Well, John, you know, I, I once faced the, the crossroads of continuing the newspaper business or go do something around Ohio State. And I remember telling my wife, I got way more faith in the love of Ohio State than I do in the newspaper business, and it worked out <laughs> Worked out for both of us. John yeah. is, like I said, people, he is the best. If you want to follow the Redskins or just NFL coverage in general, John is your guy. Keep in mind, team is not just built around Dwayne Haskins and Terry McLaurin. They're talking about adding Chase Young to the mix. Be sure to follow that. You can subscribe to John's podcast. It is the John Kime Report, K-E-I-M. We really appreciate him joining us. Have a good one, Bucknutters. Bye.